This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Go With Yammo. Go With Yammo is an art exhibition app which helps you to find the exhibitions, art fairs and art events happening all around you. The app displays exhibitions based on your location. So the one closest to you will be at the top of the list, but if you're planning a trip, you can of course change your location to a different city. What makes the app really fun is that whenever you are at an exhibition, you can check in and earn points, which can then be used to redeem prizes from the in-app store, such as prints, exhibition tickets, books and more. Go With Yamo also create custom virtual exhibitions for galleries and artists. They will be creating the virtual space for our upcoming Art on a Postcard summer auction, which is definitely worth checking out. You can find all of these on their website, along with some great blog content, including artist interviews, exhibition recommendations, quizzes and reviews. The app is free to download from the App Store and the Google Play Store, so make sure you check it out and visit their website, www.gowithyamo.com. That's www.g-o-w-i-t-h-y-a-m-o.com. Hello and welcome to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. This episode is coming out on one of the first of the proper sunny days of the year after a very miserable May and I must say that 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 seems perfect considering that it also marks the first of my interviews with the participating summer auction artists. So we have launched All the info and the cards are available for the summer auction on our website and we are so excited that we'll also be having an exhibition of the works at the Hoxton Gallery. We're so excited to have an exhibition in the flesh and I'm sure I'll see lots of you there so don't be shy coming and saying hello, um, chatting to us, letting us know how you're doing (laughs) and we'd love to talk to you about the artworks as well. Um, So the whole side of the gallery um, opens up to create a kind of an indoor-outdoor exhibition experience, which will be very lovely. So all the information for that you will find on our website, artistandpostcard.com, along with further information and um, all the beautiful 400-and-something cards that have been generously donated by some phenomenal international artists. So today's episode is with one of the participating artists we were most excited about including in this exhibition. In this episode, I talk with multidisciplinary artist Shazad Darwood. Topics um, are vast in their scope um, and they include such things as kelp forests, twilight zones in the ocean, intersectionality, the power of asking stupid questions um, and much much more. It's worth mentioning that at the top of the episode um, something happened where when I pressed recording for the first time ever a kind of digital voice went you are now recording and we were both kind of disarmed by that so you will hear us in surprise at the very top of the episode but then we quickly launch into our art chat so yes Shazad Darwood works across the disciplines of painting film neon sculpture performance virtual reality and other digital media to ask key questions of narrative history and embodiment using the editing process as a method to explore both meanings and forms His practice often involves collaboration and knowledge exchange, mapping across multiple audiences and communities. Through a fascination with the esoteric otherness, the environment and architectures, both material and virtual, Darwood interweaves stories, realities and symbolism to create richly layered artworks. As I said, Shazad is taking part in our summer auction. Details can be found at the link in the description. And I hope you very much enjoy this episode. That was um, oh, that hasn't actually happened before. <laughs> um, oh, I, I thought you'd be used to that or that was quite normal. 
No, no, no. That was just that was coming from some digital Android somewhere. Um, thank that was you. Amazing. I've I've never heard that before, but I, I feel like my rights have been respected by the digital <laughs> Android. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's nice to see you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast. Um, yeah, we really, really appreciate it. I can imagine you're very busy, um, which is kind of where I wanted to start us off, really. Um, just kind of asking you how this year has been for you and whether you're gearing up for any exhibitions that we're now that we're um, quote unquote free or whatever. <laughs> it's hard to know, isn't it, in the kind of authoritarian <laughs> kind of constant kind of up, updates from, from on high. Um, well, God, last 12 months. I mean, it's been quite an epic journey, hasn't it? I think for everyone and, uh, you know, oof, I've had just sort of friends, relatives, you know, it's just uh, just because I, you know, have in a, in a fortunate enough position in normal times to know, know people and have family spread out all over the place, but it's been pretty harrowing the last year, just trying to check in with people and keep up to speed with how people are doing. Don't you find it's just, uh, you know, and I, I must say, I just literally had, uh, you know, an IRL meeting with uh, with someone earlier today. And that was just weird. I'm, I'm out of the habit of social interaction, except via a screen, you know. Uh, yeah, for That's sure. And, and I guess also being able to monitor like kind of yourself because you constantly are able to look at yourself. I was thinking that like recently, like I wonder if we're all going to develop some kind of strange like we're all going to have to wear like caps with mirrors on them or something just to make us feel soothed by being able to watch ourselves. It's not a bad, you know, it's not a bad solution to, I guess, a, a mixture of sort of inse insecurity and kind of, you narcissism. know, a narcissism that's come out of the last year, you know, <laughs> my God. Um, you know, either it will, it will solve a number of mental health issues or, or provoke or reveal them. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, yeah, what a, what a mess the last year has been, really, in so many ways. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. Um, well, for the podcast, I've been looking through your works um, and obviously researching, and it has been truly really, really thrilling. Um, and I think that's because, um, you know, you speak about your work with a real openness, um, but also being a kind of prolific multidisciplinary artist with a strong artistic voice, it's easy to get excited about your work. Um, and I wonder, just to begin us off, what is the art that excites you the most? So either a specific artist or artworks or just more generally? You know, I think because I work in so many disciplines and in, you know, and I guess I'm lucky enough to collaborate with so many amazing voices you know, it's really hard to kind of almost pin down my own restless set of interests. You know, so, I mean, at the moment, I'm, you know, very immersed in the work of Yusuf Latif, uh, the famous jazz musician, but, you know, people are less aware of his role as an artist and an author. And, you know, late in his life, he, he developed something called autophysio-psychic music, which was uh, a sort of musical notation and form that that would awaken the sort of physical, mental and spiritual aspects of the audience simultaneously and carry us to a higher degree of kind of, you know, attunement. And I guess I've always been really fascinated by that passage from the sort of mundane to the kind of spiritual. Mm. It's, you know, I guess, you know, why, why, why do I do what I do if, I, if there isn't that kind of promise at the end of it? Mm, yeah, right. How does he achieve that? What, what, what's his um, like methods of trying to attain this kind of spiritual experience? I think really trying to, and this is obviously going to be my poor attempt to kind of, you know, understand and, and, and regurgitate it. But, you know, it's, it's this idea of a sort of notation, a sort of syncopation, assonance, dissonance between um, scales and, and, note, and notes and tones that can, can operate on all those spheres simultaneously. Mm. Um, you know, I, it, it also makes me think there was this great interview with Sun Ra when he was still alive as well. And he was, you know, I forget the full context for it. So apologies if I misquote and, it's, and it is inaccurate, but I remember this, he was being interviewed. He was performing in a small club where in the same town where James Brown was performing at a massive venue just up the street. 
and and you know he was they asked him about this and said you know how do you feel how does that make you feel and he just turned around and said well you know james brown gives people what they want and i give them what they need <laughs> i love that um there was a great um documentary on afrofuturism on the bbc just a couple of days ago um and it, sun ra was a really kind of exciting part uh, person to watch just to try and decipher where the performance started and where the real man was um so one of the works that I was um really drawn to in the research um was your humongous work Leviathan you've described it as your most ambitious project um taking two years to create from idea to exhibition in Venice and then continue to then grow um the scope of the themes within Leviathan seem to speak um to a kind of philosophy of interconnectedness um showing symbioses between systems like uh human migration and geology um and the environment could you explain, I don't know if it's possible to in, in a kind of a nutshell, but could you explain some of your findings for me and the listeners in the research process that really struck a chord with you? Wow. I mean, you know, I, th I think I should just also say that one of the most, you know, wonderful and exhilarating parts of the Leviathan project has been how, you know, from when I was starting to kind of conceive it, you know, in 2015, um, you know, possibly before that, but, you know, actively from about 2015 was thinking through intersectionality and having to spend so long trying to articulate and explain to people what the hell I was talking about and how that's gone in such a short space of time from something that I was just turning blue in the face trying to explain to something that's much more widely known and understood um, and how, you know, it's, it's more sort of common now for, you know, for an understanding of how everything connects you know there's you I was just talking to somebody the other day and you know they were um, focusing on uh, kelp forests uh, as a form of carbon capture so you know um, I don't know if you know this but but kelp there's there's basically carbon capture in the oceans that far outweighs you know it's like almost by a factor of 10 what's possible through forests and, you know, um, somebody had approached me about contributing to a project there. There's basically, um, you know, I mean, it's a very odd time politically because I find myself occasionally and surprisingly actually feeling positive about the government. So, <laughs> which is very unusual because um, it's not my government or one that I feel represents me much. But one of the things they are, in the process of doing, I mean, it's pretty much across the line, is creating a buffer zone uh, off the Sussex coast. So a four mile buffer zone, which into which trawlers cannot enter. Right, okay. And the plan is to uh, plant it with, uh, is to seed it with kelp forests. And kelp, I don't know if you know, but it grows so much faster than uh, a forest on land. And it's, you know, it, it is like I say, almost, uh 10 times the sort of carbon capture um and the person who was sort of uh talking to me and asking me if i could get involved with this you know we were chatting through it and i was just saying how one of the other um causes i've become quite passionate about and it's really through dialogues i've been having with the woods hole oceanographic institute in maine in the us okay um is their work regarding the twilight zone so I don't know if you know about the different sort of benthic zones in the ocean, but the, the midnight zone is basically the bottom. And then above it, you have the twilight zone. And, you know, it is this idea, you know, which I guess has only grown um, since I first encountered like the work and writing of Donna Haraway a long time ago, who was thinking through, you know, ideas of the post-human when nobody quite understood what she was speaking to. But this idea that how do we think you know, at the moment, I think uh, the climate emergency, it's, it's, yes, you know, it's urgent for us as humans in a selfish way, but I think it's also urgent for us to start to think beyond the human and how our interrelationship with other species uh, is also a vital way to, you know, you know, to actually 
actually mitigate some of the harmful effects. We can't think in isolation. This whole idea that we're at the top of the food chain and have some privileged position as God's chosen, you know, it's just, it ain't going to work anymore. Um, and and how do we start to think um, more empathically, you know, between and across species? And the twilight zone has become really, um, it's, you know, I really think it, you know, because we need to think about the next frontiers before it's too late. Uh, and so the twilight zone represents the, the next layer of the ocean. And the, one of the biggest migrations on earth is nightly from the twilight zone to the surface of the ocean. You have this amazing volume of biomass. So creatures from microplankton, phytoplankton, up to giant squid to you know to um, mal you know swordfish kind of literally doing an arc from the from near you know from low down in the oceans to the surface every day and that nightly migration represents a huge carbon capture that you know that i think we we need to get that information out as far and wide as we can because obviously and in typical human fashion Behind closed doors, various agencies who are supposed to represent the oceans are carving up the twilight zone into uh, national allotments for catch. And obviously, if you start fishing that, you're going you're gonna to destroy not just that carbon capture function, but imagine the sort of um, the implications for biodiversity and an unknown uh, you know, cause cause and effect chains that we have yet to properly recognize. If we've only just relatively recently come to understand this migration and carbon capture function, you know, and it's just huge. So, but obviously you can't think of the twilight zone without thinking of kelp forests. And then interestingly, I'm working with um, some really fan fantastic colleagues in Senegal at the moment, um, developing an interest I've had for a number of years, uh, initially through conversations with Louise Firth at the Marine Institute in Plymouth about mangroves. So I don't know if you know about mangrove, uh, <laughs> you know, um, and sorry, I'm probably hijacking the whole podcast. with. Please, please with do. Mangroves. I love it. Please keep going. <laughs> but, you know, mangroves, um, okay, there's a degree of carbon capture there, but there, mangroves exist at the sort of between fresh and salt water, and as a result can act as a really effective barrier against sea, uh, Sea level rise. So, you know, Louise uh, first sort of uh, made me aware of, of that function and work that was being done in, in various countries, uh, notably the Philippines and Senegal, in terms of actually um, really trying to not just save, but restore and expand mangroves with a view to a kind of long-term ecological sustainability. So, you know, how do we start to think of our coexistence with with fish with vegetation because that's what it's always been we've only told ourselves a sort of a, a sort of you know story um and you know no disrespect to kenneth clark but civilization it it's you know it doesn't exist without all the other species in the in the in the in a larger sort of more holistic ecology mm, i love that um, in thinking about, you know, looking beyond the human, often conversations of that kind of nature um, head towards this idea of robots and androids and technology, which are obviously going to also, you know, have an influence in whatever happens um, to the ecosystem, hopefully. Um, but it's quite, as someone who I can be often quite scared, probably in a quite... Um, kind of Luddite way of certain technologies. It's quite refreshing to hear you talk about um, ecosystems and the natural world um, as a kind of source of uh, assistance for our <laughs> for the trouble that we've caused. Yeah, I always tend to, I don't know if it's, you know, coming from a sort of, you know, immigrant family, but I always like to think of a sort of both and way of seeing the world. So, I mean, interestingly, you know, uh, some of the projects I've, I've worked on under the sort of banner of Leviathan have stepped into using virtual reality to take people into visions of the oceans in 150 or 300 years time. So I think there's ways to, you know, that they don't, these things, these categories don't need to be opposed. You know what I mean? It's almost like there's this sort of, 
almost sort of ridiculous um, need to kind of silo things like technology here, natural world there. And, and, it, and it seems to me it's a real human failing that we can't right. think uh, about things in a more joined up way, you know, and it's really well past time that we started doing so, you know, which is where, again, I'm so happy that intersectionality is, is becoming much more of an accepted, you know, ideal, you know, I think, you know, we've sat around in sort of post enlightenment disciplinary complacency, like, oh, you know, that's mathematics, your science, your arts. And it's like, you know, I mean, it's one of the sort of things I feel really um, sad about is the sort of cuts that are hitting the arts and education and things like that, because actually the future is interdisciplinary. It is, you know, how artists, scientists, poets, musicians, historians, geographers, geologists start to kind of create new new pathways, new ways of, of thinking through old disciplines. Um, and also new ways of reaching audiences to become engaged with the sciences. I mean, there's a there's a really interesting you know project I'm developing with uh, a great researcher in nanotechnology at UCL at the moment, and we'll see if it goes somewhere. But it's we're really uh, really just thinking a lot about how to involve school children in in how in our approach because if you don't take you know, um, younger people with you and find ways to kind of engage them, then, you know, it still becomes rarefied and, and is sort of almost, you know, just in academic journals, which are wonderful and have a very important role in peer-to-peer -peer kind of exploration. But at the same time, there's so much great material that is being channeled in those journals that isn't being, I guess, almost edited or translated into a way that it becomes part of our more common conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, hearing you speak about these projects, <clears throat> there are obviously a lot, of, it, there's a lot of um, conversations that go on with specialists and academics and activists and um, in a kind of academic sense, but then your work also succeeds as kind of emotionally engaged and, and moving um, and aesthetically uh, moving also. What is your process like of incorporating? I mean, just incorporating the academic research phase with the spontaneous act of creating something. Um, how does that relationship work for you? I mean, in, in really kind of straightforward terms, you know, I end up having a conversation with someone either because I've approached them because I've I've become aware of their research and fascinated by it, or you know what's quite amazing is these days a number of scientists get in touch desperate to talk to me because they feel rightly or wrongly that I can find a way to help them communicate their research and ideas to a broader public, and you know often it's a case of I have a a conversation with someone you know their work within their, 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 their specialist discipline blows my mind. I go away really inspired, confused, and spend a couple of weeks not sleeping properly trying to process and under, better understand what they've tried to explain to me and try and I obviously try and read around it to, better, to get a better sense of, of where they're coming from and to make sure I haven't misunderstood it too badly. And then, you know, after a couple of weeks, maybe once it sort of settles, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, dust in water. Dust, those dust particles need to sink to the bottom. And then, you know, and then the sort of gray matter of the coral can start to kind of do, do its thing. And, you know, somehow just sitting with it and then allowing myself to just be a bit more, a bit more playful with some of those ideas and think about a way, oh, and, and some, it just sometimes comes or I'll be having a, a chat with somebody else, um, you know, like a friend who might be a coder or an editor thinking about or another artist and just thinking about and, and then it just a light bulb goes off and it's like, oh, that's where I can port that kind of seemingly really complex, difficult academic idea into something that has a visual uh, possibility and, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm such a sort of, you know, I'm such a visual 
thinker, you know, it, it comes to me. And if I'm really honest, actually, I start with sound. So, you know, <laughs> sometimes it'll be like somebody's research and I'll think, oh, that experimental composer that I met two years ago, right. you know, um, I need to give them a call because somehow I don't even know yet why, but that, you know, this person's work on nanotechnology has made me think of that person for, for a reason I can't logically explain. And then I call that composer I haven't spoken to in two years and they go, you know what, I'm working on blah, blah, blah. And I go, oh my God, how did, how did, how did I sort of somehow intuit there was a marriage in here somewhere? Um, wow. And I think it's just, a lot of it's just about staying open. You know, I think uh, as humans, as a species, we have such a tendency towards inertia, you know, and I'm the first one under lockdown. There were some weeks where I was just like frazzled and, you know, overwhelmed by homeschooling and, you know, and um, worry. And, you know, of course I totally get a need to, to binge something that you wouldn't necessarily admit you've just watched, you know, on Netflix or whatever. <laughs> Um, yeah. And, you know, in that way, I'm just like anybody else. But, you know, it's then like, how do you at a certain point go, the sofa ain't going to solve the way I'm feeling. Um, what, how do I get off the sofa and take, take an, you know, make, take an action? And, and then yeah. it's like, okay, I need to call that person or, you know. Yeah, I suppose what's really interesting is that, like, not everybody feels that sense of... Um, like a need for action or like they have the um, power within them to create a change or to, to add to the conversation. Where do you think for you that that comes from, that kind of drive? I mean, I, you know, you probably need to speak to, to my shrink. Um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't know. There's, I mean, definitely I have a sort of restlessness that I'm constantly wanting to go and ask questions. And, right. you know, and I think one of my saving graces from inertia is, is I'm sort of, I'm, I've never been embarrassed to ask a dumb question. <laughs> I've been nervous too, you know, like yeah. when I was starting the whole Leviathan project, when it launched in Venice, um, I, you know, I, I had all these thoughts, you know, obviously in the, in the isolation of my studio and, you know, uh, I ended up reaching out via, via a colleague to the Institute of Marine Research in Venice, which is a sort of Italian wide body, but with its headquarters in Venice. Um, and, you know, they, they uh, sort of said, yes, they'd be open for a meeting. And, um, and I, I, you know, I was a bit nervous because obviously I'd, I'd read a lot, but in a very amateurish way. And I was going to go and meet, I didn't even know, I thought maybe there'd be one or two scientists, but I walked into a room of like eight people and literally, you know, there's that moment, I think, you know, like of absolute stage fright of like, oh my God, what have I done? I'm just a little artist who's read a bit, you know, read a bit of stuff online and tried to put two and two together and has a bunch of conjecture. And now I'm faced with, and, you know, as I was introduced to everyone in the room, you know, there was the senior oceanographer, the senior marine engineer, the director of, you know, uh, I mean, you know, there was every head of department had come to meet me and I was just like, to be honest, there was somebody behind me in the doorway who'd ushered me in. And if it wasn't for the fact that somehow I'd gone to great lengths to set up this meeting and somebody was blocking the exit, I would have given anything to turn and run. And, <laughs> I think, you know, it's just sort of overcoming that over and over again. You know, I'm always calling people and then thinking, what have I done? You know, am I prepared to have this conversation? Do I really know what I'm talking about? Are they going to, you know, uh, totally. I mean, I, I just suffer from constant imposter syndrome because I'm right. talking to people who are, you know, at the top of their game in whatever field. Um, and then you kind of have the odd weird moment. Um, I mean, like with that initial meeting in Venice, literally, they were all talking over each other to talk to me first. I think they were so excited about an artist asking some of these questions about intersectionality that they'd all been thinking about. Right. And, you know, I remember just sort of very nervously saying, you know, um, you know, I, 
saying that from all the research and, and thinking I'd done around it, there seemed to be a connection between, you know, um, between warming in the oceans and and um, the migration crisis, you know, I, and I said I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but there seemed to be some sort of way in which these two things were operating in parallel. You know, I said even just metaphorically that what's happening beneath the sea and what's happening on top of the sea in terms of climate impacts beneath the sea and migrant journeys on the surface of the sea, that was it interlinked? And I wasn't sure if they were all going to, you know, laugh me out of the room as, you know, as just sort of conjectural baloney, but they went absolutely. And I mean, that meeting was actually what sort of solidified the whole Leviathan project for me because they told me, and, you know, I still get goosebumps talking about it now. They told me about a hump on the sea floor that's sort of roughly halfway between uh, Tripoli and Lampedusa. And literally because of uh, warming in the oceans, there's a sort of a displacement of water that takes place from the Eastern Med to the Western Med over that hump. You know, imagine water rises and then falls. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that, uh, that sort of displacement of water was what was creating the eddies and currents that made that crossing so perilous for migrant journeys. Whoa. And I was just like, oh, you know, I couldn't believe that there was a sort of physical manifestation of, you know, that was such a clear logical example of what I'd been sort of somehow intuiting or feeling in the studio. Mm. And it was just like, oh, I have to do this now. And I I mean, a lot of the, and I suppose that idea of motivation, a lot of, a lot of, for me, it's a bit, you know, Laurel and Hardy, it's another, but you know, it's another fine mess you've got me into, but it's obviously me getting myself into the mess because I, I sort of feel like I, (laughs) <laughs> repeatedly sort of step in where angels fear to tread or something like that you know I just sort of go um, can I ask a stupid question and then people come back with a really kind of manifest answer that's so much more than I was ever anticipating that it kind of shocks me into having to follow through and you know that's almost how I sort of bounce from one project to the next because it seems to I stumble I guess you might almost call it stumbling into urgency. It's really interesting to hear you talk about these projects um, with such clarity, despite their inherent kind of like hugeness in scope and both in practice. Um, and I guess just maybe to make myself feel better from my own from my own artistic practice, but do you ever get afraid of such a huge project? And if so, how do you handle that fear? Um, I absolutely do. And with Leviathan being the biggest thing I've ever done, you know, it's still not over. I mean, we're six years in and, uh, you know, partly because of COVID, some of the shooting of, of uh, new films around it are delayed. And, you know, I sort of did expect to have it all finished last year, at least as a sort of, you know, for, just to, you know, nothing's ever finished. But, you know, the project as I intended it, I could have bookended it and, you know, it's not like I wouldn't still be exploring ideas around oceans because they've fascinated me before I set off on Leviathan. You know, there's previous films I've made around oceans that yeah. have definitely, you know, echoed forward into the Leviathan project. Uh, but, um, you know, it's become so big. I mean, yeah, that it's there are moments where I just want to curl up and cry, you know, just because <laughs> it all feels so overwhelming. Oh, and also, yeah. And sometimes it's also the fear of, you know, because so many people have shared their knowledge, their journeys, their experiences, their activism with me that I just sort of sometimes am crippled. You know what I mean? I'm absolutely crippled and uh, I feel paralyzed because the weight of trying to do justice to all of those bodies of work just feels absolutely overwhelming and, and trying to distill it. And then, you know, it is just sometimes being, you know, a bit of self-care, giving myself a couple of weeks off just to come back to the, to the fray, you know. Um, but yeah, and it's complex as well because, you know, oceans mean politics as well. Yeah. So there's a whole political dimension to it, which, which requires a constant kind of gauging of one's own ethics and where you stand on a number of intersectional issues. Um, you know, how much you're willing to put your neck on the line, but more importantly, how how much you're willing to put your sources on the line. And 
respect confidentiality, but still allow some of those ideas into, into kind of literal or metaphorical space, because it's really important to discuss. I think for me as well, you know, the larger metaphor of the ocean is it's largely unseen. So it's where a lot of our dirty secrets go to die. You know, um, yeah. you know, even, you know, the uh, former head of the Institute for Marine Research in Venice, uh, Fabio Trincardi was, you know, um, he gave a whole talk because uh, Leviathan's actually commissioned a number of public talks or writing that's available. So there's a whole um, leviathan-cycle.com website where you can, you, a lot of this material is copy left and free to access. Um, but, you know, Fabio gave an amazing talk um, on the dumping of armaments into the Mediterranean and the Adriatic that all started after World War One, and, you know, and that there were certain and, and reached sort of a kind of hideous, you know, sort of apotheosis um, with um, the Yugoslav conflict, you know, where um, NATO planes if they couldn't drop their payload of bombs because of cloud cover and they couldn't see the target, they couldn't land again with them. So they dumped them uh, in the Mediterranean and the Adriatic. But you've obviously got a buildup of armaments on the sea floor in corroding shell casings that date back to the First World War. Oh my God, wow. So if you think about, you know, how, how we use those spaces, you know, even tourists use them, which, you know, don't get me started. I have issues with, you know, with tourism as a, uh, as an, as an abuse of, of some of those spaces, just in terms of people leaving their crap everywhere. Um, you know, <laughs> but anyway, that's, you'll probably get me on a, on a soapbox for another hour. On that. But, you know, just with the armaments, if people are swimming or fishing and, you know, getting food uh, out of, out of those waters, you know, you've got things like mustard gas, you know, in shells that are probably uh, on their last legs, you know, the metals corroded over time, that's all being released bit by bit. And, you know, Fabio was doing a lot of work on this and lobbying the European Parliament about, about it, you know, um, uh, you know, there's so many things that, you know, I suppose that's another point where, you know, there are moments where you just feel so disillusioned and dispirited by the lack of legislation in so many areas that seems absolutely self-evident and you know the, the levels of bureaucracy that go on in delaying uh legislation because of vested interests um you know it's it's quite shocking um yeah and you know in terms of that that's you know in terms of uh various ecologies whether it's uh soil and water uh, fish and other marine species, let alone the human, you know, it's just feels like <laughs> the levels of injustices, you know, we're seeing at the moment is, are we seeing it more because they're coming to light and there's more forums for discussion around it? Or is it just the last gasp of various vested interests trying to make yet another buck on the back of expediency while they still can, because, you know, um, the consciousness is shifting against them but you know it takes time for popular feeling to to make its uh impact felt on legislation so you know a lot of things that you know that that do weigh you down if you're constantly looking into this this space yeah yeah for sure i can imagine um and i i'm not going to say that i'm um you know ha happy that you also feel that that being such a kind of prolific artist as you are it sometimes can feel like um artists such as yourself are kind of like these like resilient kind of superheroes so it's quite good to hear that you also suffer from the same kinds of um fatigues and anxieties that we all do whilst engaging in these um subjects um so uh i have read about your work as being surreal and symbolic that your work is a critical examination of identity and, and all sorts of other things um but i wonder if there was a retrospective of your work which i'm sure there will be at some point how would you as the artist like it to be described um or or perceived Oof, that's a really big and difficult question i think you know i'd probably take it to other people i think you know um there was a, uh, an, an art historian and curator who just did an interview with me the other day and 
and kind of shocked me by looking back at my career over sort of 20 years. And I hadn't, you know, I hadn't really spoken about work predating the last, you know, five, six years in a while. Um, and, you know, it was that sort of interesting thing that it was sort of simultaneously aging and reassuring because it was like, oh, how did I get so long in the tooth? Have I really been doing this for that long? Um, you know, because I guess in some ways, as artists, you stay in what you're working on presently. You know, it's a way of yeah. keeping it fresh and keeping your engagement current and contemporary. Um, but it was interesting suddenly that somebody was going, well, you've got this huge body of work behind you and it all connects and this speaks to that. And they were sort of, they sort of saw the connections over 20 years that I hadn't stopped to sort of properly think through or, or articulate. And, you know, so in that way, I think if there was a retrospective, you know, I definitely need help. <laughs> I, I need a few people to kind of really, I think also because, you know, the whole, you know, um, superhero metaphor you came up with a minute ago. I don't know if I see myself as a superhero, more a sort of, you know, somebody who, who is pathologically driven to just keep asking questions and keep <laughs> pushing forward. And in that, I think I'm always needing and maybe it's why I need so many conversations with so many kind of collaborators is because they are like mirrors to what I'm thinking and they help me sort of redefine or think through what I'm, what the hell it is I'm doing, but be what it's, what it's use value or function is for others. And I think, you know, it keep that keeps me going. Cause if it was just, you know, if it was just some sort of, you know, entropy or you know just sort of me 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 it just would you know it would cease to be interesting um so for me it's that it's always that idea of you know wanting to go for a walk hand in hand with an audience member it's never wanting to patronize them or dictate to them because we're all audience members at the same party <laughs> and, and yeah. so yeah I think the retrospective I'd want to kind of come out of a collaborative dialogue and think about what's useful and what's relevant and how other people are seeing the work. Right. Yeah. Always intersectional, always interconnected. <laughs> um, going from the something as huge as your as a the idea of a retrospective. Finally, could you talk me through your two A6 sized, <laughs> very small postcard artwork? Yeah, they're just, you know, I started um, drawing again. I mean, I've always drawn, but I started actually making drawings I was happy for other people to see again um, on a residency I was on on, on Fogo Island in Newfoundland uh, in 2019. Um, I was there for the whole summer uh, along with my kids and and I'd spent a lot of time, I'd been before and made some really interesting friends and connections with um, people who'd been involved in different ways with the fishing industry on Fogo Island, which really, you know, suffered along with the fortunes of the island after the Cod Moratorium uh, towards the end of the 20th century. And I became really interested in, in ideas of sustainability and how it related to kind of ideas of, of a symbiosis between land and sea. And particularly, um, you know, there was an older um, fisherman, retired fisherman, who I just became, you know, very, very close to. It was a very unexpected bond we formed. And, you know, he shared with me a lot of the kind of um, histories and social histories around fishing and net making, particularly, and the sort of changes from you know, organic materials to sort of synthetic nylon nets and how this affected changes into in the sort of um, into fishing practices, but also social practices on the island. So, you know, one of the most uh, interesting things, you know, he shared was how when he was young, they they would make the nets would be made in winter. So, uh, you know, when the boats couldn't go out and it was yeah. too cold and snowed in, um, the family would all make the nets together and the, they would use the dimensions of rooms to, to sort of map out the space of the net. So it became this sort of social practice that charted something 
of the daily rituals of family life in winter. And, you know, they would literally turn the net over one door handle and then over the next to map out what, what, what would become this sort of cod trap. And a cod trap, um, for those who don't know, is room sized. And, and it's an extension from, that goes out from, the, you know, a little way out from the shore into the sea. And, you know, it just got me thinking about so many things. And, you know, obviously, having worked with the oceans for quite a while at that point, I became fascinated by this, I suppose, also maybe with how large Leviathan seemed, somehow being on this small island away from everything and having these much more intimate conversations was a nice way to continue the framework in a more intimate kind of way. And I started making all these drawings and other sort of stitched work, stitched and painted works around nets. And I started to think about nets, you know, from this sort of social function to a kind of practical function of actually getting in your catch, which enabled your livelihood, to then thinking about the net as a sort of bridge between land and sea. And then thinking about that as to almost go back to the sort of, you know, autophysiopsychic as, as a sort of bridge between two planes, two planes of consciousness or two planes of thinking. And suddenly the whole allegory of nets seemed to take on this wonderful dimension that was both very bodily and very spiritual at the same time. And, you know, I, I produced a number of these drawings and, and paintings. And I, I interestingly, um, in lockdown, I, I had this sort of feeling of, if I'm honest, uselessness, you know, with the pan when the pandemic hit and, and, and such a feeling of wanting to sort of do something, especially with regard to, you know, frontline NHS workers who were literally putting their lives on the line for the rest of us day in, day out and working crazy hours. So I remember I reached out to somebody I knew, Katsu Roberts at Vitality Arts, who were part of the, the Barts, um, the Barts London NHS chess trust so it's they do art projects within sort of five hospitals near me in east london and i just said is there anything i can do and she said well funnily enough we've had a request from management for artworks for a number of um of res re respite rooms that are being either created or repurposed for uh for basically for, for frontline NHS staff to, to rest in uh, as a response to COVID because of the shifts they were pulling. And they've asked for artworks just to give people something else to look at or take their mind off their the intense grueling shifts they're working. And I said, great, I'm your man. And I literally okay. just, you know, uh, with the help of, of another friend, uh, Nick Hackworth, who runs the Modern Forms collection, we just, and Katsu herself from Vital Arts, we just pulled in I mean, a ton of artists to all make between, you know, one and 10 works on paper to go in these rooms. And, you know, um, and obviously I couldn't ask loads of artists to participate if I didn't myself. So I was suddenly like from doing these drawings and feeling a bit less sort of shy about my drawing, I suddenly was like, oh, well, I better make some. Um, and I was doing these in the studio anyway. So you know, I sort of made a bunch of them. Uh, I think, I, well, I made the full 10 since I thought I'd better make the full, the full kind of uh, quota uh, before asking anyone else. And, and it was interesting because then they were posted up as part of this project I'd initiated for the NHS and collectors and the galleries love them. So it's been, you know, like I had some of them in my show with uh, Timothy Taylor just before Christmas and they all sold out. So it's been this sort of, you know, un <laughs> you know unexpected you know yeah uh, and very nice sort of thing that just happened organically all all for a good cause that's then you know also been you know good to kind of um for the studio uh you know as a result um and yeah that's how you know these drawings just became you know when when i was asked to do something for art on a postcard it was just like well of course i'm going to make a couple of these they seem to really speak to people in a way that I couldn't have ever imagined, you know, literally, like I said before 2019, my drawings were were never shown. They were just mm -hmm. more sketches and ideas for things that would become paintings, textiles, sculptures, and those were the works I would show. And it was just sort of very interesting at a to reach a certain point in your career and suddenly 
you you know you you you, you sort of go oh these are my these are my watercolors you know? <laughs> and everyone everyone's got a bit mad for them um so it, it just and they but they really are a continuation of this whole thinking around around the esoteric potential of nets that started on wow. Fogo in 2019. That's brilliant. Wow. It's such an honour to have them included in the exhibition. We're super grateful to have you. Also, on a personal level, I live in Hastings now and I've moved here and uh, during the pandemic. And nets are such a huge part of the, of the town's identity because you have these very tall um, fishing huts where they hang the nets and they are such a part of the tourism of the town, just literally the net huts. So now they're even doubly more special to me on a personal level. So, um, and thank you so, so much for talking with me today. I found it super interesting and I know lots of our listeners will as well. My pleasure, Rosa. Thanks for a great conversation and always really happy to support, you know, the Hep C Trust and, and Art on a Postcard. Yeah, fantastic. Have a lovely day. Um, and yeah, good luck with everything to come. Likewise, take good care. Have a great rest of the day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Art on the Podcast with Shazad Darwood. I hope it was as interesting for you as it was for me. I was so um, sort of uh, taken aback, inspired, and um, really just had a wonderful conversation with him um such a terrific artist and we're so so excited to include him in our upcoming summer auction so don't forget to follow us at at art on a postcard and to have a look at our website for the info www.artonapostcard.com we might see you at the exhibition um at the end of june going into the beginning of july at the hoxton gallery um and yeah join our newsletter on our website www.artsandpostcard.com all right take care i will be with you um for our next episode which will be with the tremendous um internationally regarded um participating artist for the summer auction michael scroggins all the best <laughs>